0: This is the Horse Radio Network.
1: Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood and
2: I'm Jennifer Connor
1: from Equestrian Businesswomen and you're listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business.
2: On today's show, we are speaking to Beth Anstandig about natural leadership, her business, The Circle Up Experience, and her new book, The Human Herd, Awakening Our Natural Leadership. Beth Anstandig is changing the way organizations, leaders, and individuals use their power. As a lifelong cowgirl, writer, professor, and licensed psychotherapist, Beth has 25 years of experience pioneering the natural leadership model helping people awaken their innate awareness so they can live and work with more authentic relationships and connection. She has been featured in global media, including BBC, World Service, PBS, and Forbes. Beth lives on her California ranch with her family and an expanding community of animal herds.
3: The Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular is the first ever horse show created by women, operated by women, benefiting women's health, and showcasing women in business. This one-of-a-kind, extraordinary event is one you will not want to miss and is open to all competitors, both men and women, in the equestrian community. The Saratoga WIB Spectacular Horse Show is a a rated jumper three-star competition from July 13th through 17th, 2022 in Stillwater, New York. The Saratoga WIB Spectacular will partner and collaborate with equestrian businesswomen on this initiative. Exhibitors and attendees will be offered educational opportunities throughout the show and beyond to meet, interact, listen, and learn from a variety of remarkable women willing to share information about their careers and the paths they chose. For information on how to support Saratoga WIB Spectacular, visit www.saratogahorseshows.com. Good
2: morning, Beth. It's so great to have you on. We're really excited to talk to you today about all the interesting things that go on in your life.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs>
2: yeah. So um, I've, I've done some background reading on you and you just have so, so many interesting things, so many things to offer. I think our listeners, I think they're going to be really excited to hear it. So um, I think that one of the a great place to start would be for you to kind of give us a little bit of background and how you became interested in horses and the dogs and psychology and you know, all your background.
0: Sure. Um, I have always been a um, observer and a noticer of things is kind of how I'll refer to myself and um, just very curious person and Um, and so I think that the psychology piece, I, I started observing and noticing people at a really young age and just very curious about people's behavior. Um, but I did grow up in a pretty chaotic environment. Um, not, not the, the healthiest environment. And I watched people not take care of themselves and I watched people, do a poor job of taking care of each other. But it was juxtaposed with these animals in my life who dif- behaved very differently. And so I have really young memories of watching the two side by side and noticing the differences and identifying more with the animals than I did with the adult humans who seemed to be um, struggling and suffering. And so I, I continued really studying both, always noticing the differences and trying to find some way to reconcile those. And that's just been my life journey. And it's taken me in different, all different paths, but I think that's the thread that's carried the whole, the whole story.
2: Wow. And so what age were you when you became interested in horses?
0: I was about five and it was just one of those stories that people like horse people tell where it's like you just have that first encounter and it's just magic and you can't get enough and it just gets gets stronger as you get older and have more resources and capability to have them in your life. (laughs) And so that was really it for me. Yeah. I mean, I grew up outside of Detroit. The area I grew up in was actually at that time, it, you know, pretty rural and there were horses around and, um, but I, but they weren't necessarily in the family that I was growing up and there were a lot of dogs. And so that was my first animal love. Um, but on one, one part of my family comes from old, um, Colorado, Idaho ranching and logging, kind of tradition, like um, that's that's part of my heritage. And so there was some family ranch life going on there, but that's not where I grew up. I grew up in Michigan. And I started going to horse camp when I was um, about seven. And between five and seven, I was just like grasping for horses anywhere I could. And then it, that's where it really exploded.
1: How did you take that love of animals and wanting to be around them and kind of move into more of studying animal behavior later in life?
0: So I, um, once I, you know, around 20 years old, once I had, um, I I had independence at a really young age, like um, 16, really, as soon as I, I, I kind of joke that I was raised by wolves, because I was raised by my dogs, um, which is a little bit of an exaggeration, but I did have a lot of independence at a young age. And, um, at, but I did get my own dog, um, when I was 20 and I started, I was always studying animals on my own as a child and everything that whenever I could do my own, a project or research, it was always animal oriented. Um, and taking lessons. And, you know, I was really, um, a student. I am kind of a student of all things. I just stay in learning mode lifelong. Um, but when I got my first personal dog, that was my choice dog. I got a border collie and I started learning about sheep herding and the dog human partnership. And so that was, um, almost 30 years ago. And that began, Um, really that began the journey for me of understanding the relationship between human animals and other animals and like the ancient relationship of partnership which has played out you know with other predatory animals or with prey animals in really interesting ways that have um, I think often served both species but not always and Mm. so but I was really interested in looking at how could the partnerships work in a way that was good for both? And so I I started that study when I was 20.
1: So Beth, what are the most important lessons that you've learned from animals?
0: I think that it starts with um, a core lesson, which is about honesty. And um, I've noticed that For humans, we are not honest with ourselves and aware of our own needs. And we negotiate and debate with the signals of our bodies that our our mammal body is trying to tell us about what we need and argue with those and then Mm -hmm. ignore them. And the animals have a pristine and impeccable relationship with the signals of their bodies. And so they always take care of their needs. And they're very honest with themselves and each other about what those needs are. So I Mm -hmm. think that the core lesson is about reconnecting with our survival so that we really are listening to ourselves, tuning in, taking care of ourselves and then we're able to actually show up and do that with others. Mm-hmm. And I think we skip over that piece and focus externally so much and focus, whether it's externally on achievement or being productive or busy or focusing on others and trying to change them. But we skip over this first part about, you know, the self and, not the self in terms of the ego, but the self around trying to be in a state of ease. And so I think, you know, the honesty with self-care and that radical self-care that they have is all to be able to conserve energy and be in a state of ease as quickly and as often as possible. And Mm -hmm. that all of the lessons that I write about and teach come from that core piece. Um, I think that's the thing that's always struck me about the animals and has kept me really studying them, learning from them, um, allowing them to guide me and show me how to do that. I haven't found a human teacher that does it as well. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I know. Sometimes you look at like, my dog and they she's happy like all the time right like yeah. and, and and it's like well is that cuz she doesn't have a care in the world or is that because she just you know it lives in the moment right like sometimes i'm like i wish i was that happy waking up in the morning because it's <laughs> like she's ready to start the day and ready yeah. to go and i know i it's like she was a rescue so i think she's probably thankful that yeah. she's in the situation that she's in but i often am like man wouldn't it just be nice to like s- simplify it and just be in be in the present which we've talked a little bit about before about mindfulness and stuff but like yeah the self-care really is um interesting to bring that yeah. up and, and and even sitting here thinking about it and thinking about like the horses they're out in the field they're eating they're just relaxed and they're doing their thing and it's not that they aren't aware of what's going on but they're just living in that moment type.
0: They're incredibly aware of what's happening, but they're aware of what's happening within them. And, you know, I break it down into four awareness channels. The first is what's going on within me that tells me about my needs and my state of ease and what I might need to adjust. What's happening with you and how do I, do you need, you know, do you need support? Are you someone I can lean on? Are there signals that are going on with you that tell me about my needs? because that's how the herd lives. What's happening between us and our relationship? And so do we have ease in our group, you know, in our herd or in our pack, or are we needing to adjust so that we can negotiate needs and then what's happening around us? And the reason they're able to be in that that present moment is because they're attending to the present moment. We're, mm-hmm. you know, I, I study with these um, beautiful um, monks from Thailand that lived down the street from my ranch. And they showed up here and just decided they wanted to start teaching meditation at the ranch. And this was like years ago. And I, I've been like fighting meditation, like in a, like a wrestling match with meditation for like 30 years. And now these monks are like at my gate and, they're like, we're going to teach here. I'm like, no.
1: <laughs> and Wow. What a sign.
0: I know. Right. I like, um,
1: literally monks at your
0: door. Study. No, I wish I were. This was like, um, you can't make fiction this good. And they're, and they're like, Oh no, we're from the, you know, forest meditation or forest tradition, like forest monk trad- tradition. So they, they meditate outside and, um, and so they're like and they love the animals and so they're like not only are we going to come to your house but you can bring your animals <laughs> wow. i'm like oh so you've made it impossible for me to say no to this but they're they've they've been they really become these wonderful teachers and and maybe they're the closest thing to the horses about learning about the present and about taking care of needs um but they say that as soon as we wake up our mind starts time traveling. It, it leaves the body and it goes to the future and it goes to the past, but it's no longer in the present in the body. And actually meditation isn't about necessarily like sitting in lotus position for you know an hour. It's about any moment that you bring your mind and your awareness back to the body because the home of the mind is at the center of the body. It's actually two fingers above your belly button That's your home. That's where the mind wants to go and rest. And so when you were mentioning, Jen, about, you know, when you wake up or your dog wakes up, the reason she's happy is because she's still in her body. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we struggle is because we jump into the future or we start going into the past and it, that takes away our happiness of the moment because we're not actually there anymore. We've left <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. We've left the moment. Yeah. So I really try to slow down how I wake up, so that and and I have a bunch of dogs and they they have a whole wake up routine and I let I've become a part of it mm-hmm. so that I can I wake up differently than I used to because I don't to try to let my mind you know, ease into the present and it's going to move into the future or go into the past. But I, I try to, um, soak up that, that present moment and slow it down a little bit whenever I can. If I notice that I'm feeling angsty, that's what I do is I go back into like bringing my mind back into my body just to the here and now. And it's not, I don't have to meditate, but to the monks, that is meditation. Mm -hmm. Even if it's for five seconds, anytime you bring your mind mind back into your body.
2: Oh, wow. Well. there's something else interesting that you, you said about like, um, in the herd, and how, the, you know, they might have to adjust and work it out. And I feel like that's probably a very difficult thing for most of us to do within groups of people, because I think that we take things so personally a lot, like um, confrontation is hard, and you don't want to you know, there are some people who are okay with it, but there's a lot of people who are not. And so what from the animals have you learned? Like, how do they, you know, offend each other and then not then come back and be friends and, you know, make those adjustments,
0: you know? It's in the pack too. It's in all animals. It's in all mammals. And, you know, mammal groups are supposed to be multi-generational learning places. And that's where we learn our skills. That's where we learn our social skills. And so, you know, you'll notice, I can always tell when I'm around horses, which ones have been raised in a herd and which ones were weaned young and separated and how they were weaned. You can tell whether they have had herd experience or not. And it's the same with people. And so those are social skills that we learn. And unfortunately, in the human herd, we stop learning those skills after like kindergarten, elementary school. And but if you watch children, they're amazing at feedback and moving on from it. The problem is, is that we don't continue to teach our kids that because We've kind of got like a stopgap where we haven't, we have, we've got like a generational deficiency as human animals in learning to do subtle feedback to make those adjustments that um, have our groups in a state of ease without getting into, we either wait way too long to do feedback. And then when we do it, we're really clumsy because we haven't been taught or practiced it. And then the other thing is that we waited so long that when we do give feedback, it's often reactive and explosive and causes damage to relationships. And so, but if you're with a herd or you're with a pack of animals, or you can see a really healthy intact group where there's a lot of trust that's been built, they're giving feedback all the time. And that's, that comes from experience and practice. And those are actually skills. Those are behavioral skills they're not just ideas, that you have to have safe groups to learn them in. And we're lacking that in the human world. Then we go interact with our animals who are so confused because either they grew up in healthy groups or we interfered with them growing up in healthy groups. And so they're lacking those skills too. This is why our horse shows rings or practice rings at horse shows are such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Where you can, I mean, really, or why you'll see a lot of barn drama. You know, I yeah. think there's examples of plenty that you can see where you know the human piece we've we've interfered a bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say you, you can tell when a horse has been weaned too early. Um, my parents had a couple of racehorses come from the same place, and it it was the mare and foal, and that's it. And both of the well, there were three of them that we had in training over the years, and they were very different. Then the ones that were raised in the big groups on the big breeding farm, these guys were like, they didn't understand space. They didn't understand, you know, the when you reprimanded them or, you know, they, they just didn't have as much respect as horses that come from the big, big group. So yeah, I can totally see, you know, yeah,
0: they that. also don't know how to take care of themselves and it yeah. causes a lot of insecurity. Because they haven't, that's, I mean, again, back to self-care, it starts there and we're learning how to take care of ourselves, how to take care of ourselves within the context of a social group, regardless of what kind of mammal it is. And so Mm -hmm. uh, an animal that doesn't have that capacity, that hasn't grown that capacity goes into the world feeling fearful and they should, because they're lacking an essential skill and they're going to get pushed out of groups. And you see it with people all the time that haven't been given, you know, really good social skills or self care skills, they end up in a lot of trouble in life.
2: Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about the ranch that you have and your business, the circle up experience? Because that sounds like it's pretty, pretty cool.
0: Thank you. Yes, I so I have a ranch here in Northern California. And I am. um, just outside of Silicon Valley, so I'm in the Bay Area and um, it's it's kind of a funny funny place. It's like you're I'm right in the middle of all this high tech or not middle. I'm on the outskirts of it. But we this area of California has so much open space. Um, it's just a high high value a culture value here in, in this area to protect open land. And so, Um, Silicon Valley is surrounded by open space. And so when I first moved here to this area in 1998, I just, I just rode the hills. Like that was my, I just rode the hills and I really got to know Silicon Valley through horses, which is kind of a funny thing. And then I ended up in this, in the town where I live, which is kind of like the last small town in Silicon Valley. And, um, and then I, I bought this ranch and um sort of surrounded by open space but yet still have access to um things and that are that make human life convenient so um mm-hmm. i have a a herd here and they live together and i've raised two babies in the herd um or they've raised the herd has raised two babies i should say um i have just gotten to the privilege of being a witness and and student of that process and um, and then I have a Mustang that I um, adopted from the Bureau of Land Management last year, who's now part of my herd, wow. which has been really interesting to see the difference between wild Mustang herd behavior and domesticated oh, horse behavior. But it, bet, they've yeah. learned a lot from her. Yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's great to see, you know, somebody who actually grew up and lived in a wild herd and then, mm. oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, she's, she is five years old. And, um, so she definitely had, she grew up in, um, with her herd in Northeastern Nevada, pretty high elevation. And I've researched the area and there's definitely wolves. And I mean, she, Hmm. she probably, I mean, she probably had some, some pretty substantial life experience out there. Hmm. And, um, it's really interesting because my, my Colt, who's coming up on four, when I brought the Mustang here, um, they instantly fell in love. It was like love at first sight. This incredible friendship and watching them play and his his play skills and hers were very different, and um, and but they figured it out really fast. It took a huge leap of faith for me to just let this Mustang that I had like you know, I I couldn't even touch her yet. And I, I realized really fast that I was going to need to give her the herd. And, um, but most of what you read from people that do Mustang adoption and gentling is not to put them with your herd, or with other horses, because they'll bond to the other horses before you. And um, so I, I thought I was going into the experience keeping her separate, but I realized really fast that I was depriving her of an essential need. And so everything that I thought I was going to do ended up Mm -hmm. being different, but it's turned out to be an incredible, um, stabilizing force in my herd. And she's been slowly taking over the matriarch role. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's mentoring Mm -hmm. with my matriarchal mare and, um, yeah, it's really beautiful to watch.
2: Uh So on the ranch, you have a business that you run there called the Circle Up Experience. Can I you do. talk about that?
0: Yeah. So I, um, I'm a licensed psychotherapist and um, I started doing equine therapy, um, which I was then asked to to do a, um, a group that was more work focused. And I've always had an interest in um, work relationships and work culture. So I was really excited to do that with the horses Um, and once I did that first group, I realized that there was no going back. I really, um, first of all, love working with groups. And I also realized there was no way I could do work with people, whether it was individuals, couples, families, teams, there was no way I could do it without my horses anymore. So, um, the, the way that it, enlivens human development and our personal development or professional development, the way that it brings things, um, you know, into this kind of vibrancy and allows things to be practical and concrete and right in the moment with something that is not possible without the horses. They're, they're incredible teachers and, and very willing. They, they all, you know, most of my herd likes doing the horsework and volunteers themselves and, um, so I have groups that come here from all over the world, um, to do, um, retreats and workshops and to learn from the horses about how to take care of themselves as individuals and how to create healthy culture in their groups. And so most of the, the groups that come, um, spend two or three days here and, um, work with my herd and we do all kinds of experiential activities. And, um, And then they take those lessons and experiences and new capacities and, um, and we work on how to integrate that into their, their work culture, which almost always then, um, carries into how they do their home life culture, which is really, um, was my original inspiration. It was like, this is this untapped place where people are suffering at work and then they take that at home. And so, um, this, this as an entry point really affects a lot of lives. And so it was really, um, very inspirational and powerful for me to be able to do that and to be able to do it with the horses.
2: And how did you grow your business into like an international business?
0: That just happened organically. And most of my, um, I, you know, I don't have a business background. And so, um, but I, I've always paid attention to if it's something that I need, then it's probably something that might, you know, might be needed by others. And so that's kind of been, always been my, like a guiding, a guiding principle that, um, and I haven't really marketed per se, but the more that I, when I notice a need, I just, I'm often curious about whether other, whether other people have that need. So when I've created offerings, those have been, um, you know, and I think that it, that's how referral works that if you're, you're meeting the needs of others, they will talk to people about what they need. And so it's been very referral based. And um, there was a, you know, real serious pause obviously, in people traveling for during COVID, but now that things have been, people have been more mobile again um, and have really suffered from not gathering, Um, my business picked up again and um, but I think the need for really um, quality personal development work that crosses into professional development work that is practical and um, skills-based and behavioral and helps us um, get to wellness issues quickly that is a real need in the world and so I think because of that, the business has grown itself and um, and it's happened through referrals.
2: Well, how large are the groups that you host?
0: Um, they're usually between um, 10 and 20 people. Wow. And so I have a team of people that I've worked with and or trained. And so I, I've been teaching the model that I that I work in for a few years. And so I have like, I have my own herd of people that I'll bring in to help with larger groups um, to make sure that, you know, we're staying active throughout our days and there's enough facilitation going on that there's a good ratio of participants and facilitators. Do they stay right on the ranch? They don't. Um, I've thought about, um, you know, building more of like a retreat, type of space, but I'm not a hospitality person. And so I'd have to have somebody else run that, (laughs) you know, I have to, I think it's really important in in terms of business to really get clear about like, what is your lane? Like, what is the thing that you do do really well? well? Yeah. (laughs) What is my my thing that I do well? And I'm, you know, I just keep going back to like the, the thing that I do well is, um, is a larger scope. Is like, is, and, and in terms of, you know, assessing the group and getting a really clear picture of what, you know, creating that foundational experience where people um, really wake up to this part of themselves that they can use in their lives. Like that, that's my, it's the inner work that's my, my specialty. And so everything else in my business that isn't that, I have made sure that I've built support around. And I think for small business people, it's really hard to think about doing that because you're going to spend money. But what I found in the early stage of my business, um, I had a business partner and our strategy was to do everything ourselves. And it actually caused huge harm to our business partnership. I ended up with the business on my own and, um, and the learning that I had from our original strategy of we'll do everything ourselves was the complete opposite. And, and in fact, it's what is the thing that I do and I need to protect that and make sure that I get lots of support and and work through the anxiety of spending money to do that because that's going to allow the business to grow.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really important concept that a lot of business owners struggle with it- is being able to let go of things, you know, they've worked so hard in their own business and it's really hard for them to say they need help in certain ways and to cede the, the um, control of that to other people.
0: It is about letting go, but it's also about empowering others and letting other people mm. have a purpose. And yeah, I just go back to the herd and you know, there. Everyone has a unique gift that you come into the world with, temperamentally, and that you hone. And the, I see that in animal groups. I see that in classrooms. I see it in all the groups that I work with. And um, and when we try to take on gifts that aren't our own, or and try to take on too much, we're actually paralyzing people around us to be able to participate, which is not nice. <laughs> and then we're mm-hmm. exhausting ourselves which is not nice to ourselves. So, um, yeah, i definitely, you know, really try to stick to my, my lane. Yeah. And what were
1: some of the key experiences, um, that inspired you to write your book?
0: So I've been teaching, um, and then doing this, the, the work with my clients and, um, you know, doing things like this, coming on podcasts and talking about this work. But I really wanted to share the perspective, like the core lessons and perspectives from the animals um, in a broader way and to have, you know, an audience that isn't necessarily able to come and do something experientially here or, you know, learn with me. If they, you know, do a course with me, that they're, that the those core lessons were accessible through a book. And for people that read the book, you'll see I've had incredible teachers, um, the animals, but also Mm -hmm. I've really found beautiful teachers along the way who have been mentors and guides. And I feel a responsibility to pass that on And that's really what the book is about. I mean, it, they, I I mean, I hope I have some of my own wisdom to offer, but I mean, I think that we are multi-generational learners and if we hoard what we've learned, we're not allowing it to continue flowing, you know, kind of downstream. And so that was a real inspiration for the book. One of my most important mentors has passed away. And so whatever I teach of his gets to stay alive in the world. And the same is true with my animals that have passed away. You know, those animals gave me something and those experiences gave me something that, you know, they're not going to necessarily be like the only thing that changes someone's lives, but it might be a story that allows somebody to have their own story in a different way. And so that that was really it was like the multi generational learning model that I really believe in, that um, inspired me to write the book.
1: Was the book something that came about because of the pandemic, because you had more time to work on it, or was it something that um, was earlier?
0: It's so funny. I I I had like less time, and during the pandemic, um, I mean, even <laughs> though I had less groups coming, all of my. The organizations that I support long term were all in crisis, and yeah. um, and then you know I don't see a lot of ongoing one on one psychotherapy clients anymore. But I also won't turn away anyone that I used to see. So there was a drove of old clients yeah. coming back. I mean, our, our mental health crisis was so huge; it continues to be. Um, it I felt it, it was it was less about time and more about an urgency to get the message out there and then yeah the i've been talking about the um the kind of being at a crisis point in our human herd um especially around self-care and how we care for others and i've been talking about that and teaching it for a while but i finally heard it when the pandemic hit it's like it woke everybody up to what I had been seeing in a more subtle way. And so I felt a huge, um, it was very compelling to get the book finished and out there because of that.
1: Got it. And what were some of the challenges uh, that you had in writing this book? I mean, it's such a different experience than being with a group of people, isn't it?
0: It is. In my first career is as a writer. And so I actually have an MFA in creative writing and poetry. Oh, and cool. I, I taught writing and ran a literary arts center and was a university faculty member. And um, I did that for about eight years before I went back to school for clinical psychology. And okay. so writing life and being in a writing space and that that internal world of writing is, um, something I'm really familiar with and, Mm. and love, but I have to say, (laughs) um, I'm, it was this kind of book, which is very different than what I'm used to writing. It was really hard. (laughs) It was really, really hard. And I found, and I, I wonder this about other, I wonder if it's true for other writers. Um, a lot of time is spent agonizing about not writing when you're writing a book. A lot of it is spent trying to get in front of the computer and have this like convergence of it's like the stars all align and you can actually yeah. get the words out. <laughs> and so yeah. I got really creative about making that happen and um, creating, you know, kind of some natural draw and drive you know, what was going to motivate me and what was going to pull me forward. And um, and it turns out deadlines are, and uh, like fear of disappointing people are very motivating mm-hmm. for me. And so I created some structure around that. Yeah, um, And then I have an 11 year old daughter who was so tired of listening to me whine about finishing the book. And <laughs> when she would see me doing things, she's like, I'd start some project and she was just on my case and it was really quite funny, mm-hmm. but I had some really good support. I have an editor who was, I didn't want to disappoint. And so that really helped like having somebody I had to answer to, to be accountable mm-hmm. to. Um, so I think again, to kind of figuring out like, who are you, what are your needs in order to get something done? Cause we're all different in that way. We have different mm-hmm. kinds of motivation just like our horses or dogs. And so discovering what that is for you and then building structure around it. So I I did do that and it helped.
1: And um, how do you feel like the book or does it uh, kind of round out your business or is it something completely different from what you do as your main business?
0: Um the content of the book really does describe the kind of work that I do with people and the concepts and um, core lessons from the animals. It really does bring that to life in a book form. Um, writing a book, promoting a book um, that's actually been really uncomfortable for me and has not felt like, like with the, it, cause it, it, it feels a little too focused on me whereas mm-hmm. with the horse work it's i i get to kind of um translate what's happening between horses and people and kind of stay a little bit more in the background so that part's been a little bit harder for me and it's felt a little more exposing mm-hmm. and um than and more suppo- exposing than i expected so that was a little surprising um, but it has it does allow that entry point. Like I thought it would where people are reading the book and then they're saying, I need to do, I need to come and do something with the horses. I want to have an experience. And that was what I was hoping for was that it would, it would bring that to life. And then I am hearing people say, because there are exercises in each chapter um, that are, people are saying that the stories and the exercises like caused them to do something new in certain situations, and so in that way, it also is kind of bringing the business to life. That I'm not coaching someone at all; they just read the book and then decided they wanted to try something different with either an animal or a person, and mm-hmm. and then they had some results. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fantastic. Then the book is definitely doing what I hoped it would. Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: There's a lot of great concepts in the book and, and um, good ideas and great lessons for people to learn. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your, the leadership part of it, because what I got from it was that you feel like everybody has some kind of like leadership in them, and they can bring it out. So can you talk a little bit about how you define leadership?
0: Sure. So Um, I define leadership as um, the way that we conduct ourselves or lead ourselves through each day and through our own lives. So I think about self-leadership first, like how do I take care of myself and how do I allow my whole self to communicate with my needs so that I can make adjustments and lead myself through my own life? From there, then I have roles in my different groups where I'm periodically leading. Like if I go into a friendship group and I have an idea of where we're going to have dinner, I've taken a leadership role. Or if I start a conversation, I've taken a leadership role. Um, and you know, there's in in groups we have natural. Um, gifts and talents and skills that we're particularly good at that are that are temp- based on our temperament and those those are our leadership gifts. Those are innate, and they, if given the opportunity, those are can be used by the group when needed. And so, in a shared leadership model, which is that depending on what's needed at any given day, moment, individuals emerge in order to meet those needs of the group and to guide the group. And so it, it based on that definition, everyone has self-leadership and everyone has something to offer.
2: Yeah. And I really, I like that because I think there's a lot of people that And I think in our society, it's like, oh, either this person's a leader or this one's a follower and, and there's not. But when you said that about, you know, individual like leadership and how pretty much everybody has it at some point, I was like, oh, wow, like that actually does make sense that, that people can kind of bring it out. Um, do you think that people, it, it, once they, um, realize it, do you think that they can work on it to make it stronger?
0: Absolutely. I think people, um, that's what people do here at the ranch is they discover what their unique gift is. And then the the reason that we work in groups is to for people to to loosen up that hierarchical model, to kind of break it up and make space for people individually to emerge into leadership when it's needed. And so the activities that we do here help everybody to find what what that gift is and then start to practice using their voice and showing up for the group when they notice that they're needed. And so that's the way all mammal groups operate. And so I'm not I'm I'm not exactly sure why we would be any different. I don't think we are. I think we just have lived with especially in western culture with some hierarchical models mm-hmm. and that that have become dominant but uh, but it's not the way re- the rest of mammals live so i yeah that's exactly right that that we can absolutely hone and build and expand and strengthen that once we know what it is it's so empowering for people to discover what their natural leadership gift is
2: yeah it, did you learn a lot about that by lo- watching the animals and you know how they use their leadership skills?
0: Yeah, especially with the horses. I mean, they're, you know, it's it, it's, um, it's living with a herd and being with them and watching how they allow leadership to shift through the group and, you know, so that needs can be met, but also so that whoever is leading can lead and then rest, you know, can be in that um, awareness of, group needs, but then you can only hold that for so long. And so I, I really have studied that extensively and, um, and I, I see how empowering it is and exciting it is for the herd members to be able to play a role. And I, and then I watch it with, you know, my daughter went through Montessori and, um, and that's one of the things that is a core Montessori philosophy is that, you know allowing children and i think it's true for adults to to feel a natural excitement to come into natural excitement based on competencies mm. and i think we just all we have to do is make space for that and that's where you'll see teams come to life when people when there's space for people's natural competencies to become stronger we mm we want those competencies because they help us survive.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess in my head, I kind of had this fixed picture of, I'm sure many people have seen it of like a wolf pack, right? And there's, you know, two in the front. And then there's a couple, there's like a smaller gang. And then there's usually the the rest of the pack. And then like the old ones take up the the end, right, to kind of keep everybody safe. But I never thought about like the dynamics of that being able to shift, right? So as ones get older, they fall to the back. And as you know, the younger ones protect or somebody might die off, they have to move up. So they they essentially do have to have that leadership in them. But when you look at that picture, it's a very fixed picture. And so you think, oh, there's, this is the only way, right? There's a hierarchy there. These guys are in charge. These guys are in the middle. These guys are at the end and that's it.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> and, and um, like, that's that moment of the day, but then when other things are happening, yeah. like one of the things I've noticed in my herd is, um, and it's surprising, but then I think about other cultures, human cultures, and then it's not surprising, but, that my oldest male is, who's essentially the patriarch of his, he's not a stallion, but he kind of has a stallion type of role. Um, he is like really the babysitter of the younger horses. And when they, he's really calm and very steady. And when they get too rowdy, he kind of follows them around a little and watches. They get really rowdy and it's, and it's like right before someone's about to get hurt, he just kind of calmly walks in <laughs> and like takes a big breath. And like, he just, he just walks right through them. Oh yeah. And, um, it's very gentle. It's not, it, you know, it's not with his ears back or anything. He's just like floppy eared walking right through them. And it's kind of like you guys break it up. And so that role, as he has slowed down as an older, like an elder, He's an incredibly calming force for the younger ones. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that it's like that's needed throughout the day, actually. (laughs) It's, you know, slowing down those nervous systems that are particularly high strung, you know, is it's a it's like, oh, well, that's gonna slow down the herd. It's like, yeah, that's right. It's gonna slow it down to a sustainable pace. Mm-hmm. And it not all the time. It's also that those youngsters keep him young. Right. They give yeah. him purpose. He plays, he's their massage therapist and you know, <laughs> he's like their. he he really looks after them and he has purpose.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I also in reading your book um came to the part about like deep connections. Like you seem to have very deep connections with a lot of your animals. And I actually was talking to Jen a little bit about this because I feel like maybe it's something that a lot of us, we don't realize or we don't, know what it feels like. So can you talk a little bit about those deep connections and and how if there's a difference between like the deep connection that you have, is it instantaneous? Is it something that you develop over time? You know, because I feel like I've developed relationships with several of my animals over time. We've clicked, we've had a connection and we've made it work. But I also feel like I have some that I've never felt that with and I don't know if I'm ever going to feel that with. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there I, I kind of when I have picked animals, there's just a spark. There's just a something there that, you know, that's um, that I'm attracted to that I that I I remember when I was trying to find I was I was looking for a horse about 15 years ago, and I met so many horses, and they were lovely. And I it was just like, it wasn't, clicking and, and it was, I was looking for the connection. It wasn't, it, it, it was just, I wait until I see something there and it's, um, you know, I, but it starts with my connection to myself and what I'm, I, I'm available for those kinds of relationships. And so I'm, I open myself to that and then wait to see if the other animal, human or horse <laughs> or dog is going to meet me there and not everyone does. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, not everybody connects at that level. And I, but that's what I like. I I like that deeper connection. I've met a lot of shut down animals and I think uh, humans included and, um, and then I, but I also have met a lot of animals that just don't operate at that level. It's just not there. Um, and that's okay. It's just, I, I prefer that deeper connection with myself. Like I, I really like to feel that in my own life and in my own inner world. And so I, I seek that out in, in my animals.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, I was yeah. curious about that because I'm like, I have a pony that I am riding and she's she's nice and I like her, but I don't feel like this like burning connection with her. And I'm like, am I going to get there or is she just like, or neither one of us, I guess, open to it, you know? And I feel like that could be the case, you know?
0: Interesting. That's interesting. I don't know, for some reason, when you just said that about the pony, I was picturing you with the pony. I like very visual, so I like always <laughs> have like a mental image and- I was thinking about my horse Rosie and our connection. Like my horse Sally, like puts her head on my shoulder and we just like breathe together and look in each other's eyes. And like it's like <laughs> very, you know, it's the Mustangs like that. It's like very intimate and emotional. Rosie and I go do adventures together. Oh. And that's where our connection happens. Like we'll go do something together. We're like, we're like activity girls together. It's like our thing. And like, we go do cows and like, we go, you know, we will go take her for like four days to go on an adventure. And our connection comes while we're doing things. Oh, like we'll yeah. take a break or something and we'll have these moments. And I'm like, oh, there we are. And, um, she's really introverted. She really bonded to me, but her, she does better the intimacy of like those quiet moments of just being together, they happen interspersed with activity. And so, um, yeah, I think they're, it's, they're all the animals are a little bit different around how to, how I, we get that, but I do, I do look for it. Oh, that's and look for ways to connect. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Is there a way that you do that with humans as well or yeah. people that you work with?
0: Yeah. And, I'm always looking at like what level of depth is available, and I'll just think about it. Like, is the gate open? Like, if I press on it a little, like, is it like you know some hinges are like frozen shut? And you're like, wow, that's we're just not going there. And mm-hmm. so, and then like, how open is it? And it's okay. Like, whatever I can accept, whatever it is. But um, yeah, certain people connect through humor. Certain people connect through service, like being helpful. And, um, and I don't really like connection. I don't care how we do it. I mean, but you can, we can do it however I'm pretty adaptable. So Mm. I don't, I'm, it doesn't matter to me, but then helping other people see that, like there's bids for connection people will make, and then they'll other people will miss it because they're used to connecting in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's different than like that kind of pop psychology, like love languages but it's not altogether different. It's like, what is the way that you connect most? And so trying to find what that is, just human to human, not necessarily partner to partner or you know, like love relationships.
1: Being able to recognize that in other people and, and maybe seeing that the way that they connect is different than the way that you connect.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have... Um, And we, that changes over time as we mature and develop, like what are our capacities for connection? What, how, how deep do they go? And then also what, um, we get more adaptable, I think, as we get older around how we connect with others.
1: But thanks so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate talking to you and being able to learn about what you do and how you help people, um, with animals and and how you learn from them. And we hope people can get something out of listening to that and going to get your book and reading it and um, learning more.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So at the end of every episode, we ask the same three questions to each guest. And Connor usually starts with the
2: first question. What is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives?
0: Take one day and ask yourself what you're needing on a subtle level and make micro adjustments for the whole day and just notice the difference in how you feel about yourself.
1: That's great. Yeah. Is that something that you do regularly?
0: It is. Yeah. I do it every day. Yeah. Yeah. I do it every day, <laughs> but it's taken a long time to get that ad- to, to become a habit and um, especially for women, because we tend to be very focused on taking care of others, we have to train our minds to be thinking about our own needs
1: mm-hmm.
0: and to actually listening to them. So when you do get thirsty, you do get up and get the drink of water. Or if you feel like you've been sitting too long, you actually do stand up and stretch, like actually do the things that your body is telling you to do.
1: Yep. Need to work on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Um the second question is what is the best habit that keeps you motivated personally?
0: Um I learned this um in um I'm a sober alcoholic and I've been sober for a long time and I have like a couple things where I'm really extreme about and one of them is identifying at any given moment, am I in um like self-will and ego? or am i actually in like a higher purpose, higher calling, higher power mindset. And so it's very black and white. Like i'm either in one or the other. Mm-hmm. And like ego is reactive and fearful and self-centered, and higher power, higher purpose has like a calmness about it and usually like a gentler mindset. And so i'm often asking myself that question. I'm i'm either in one or the other. Which one is it? And i do it all the time.
1: And do you, from that, do you feel like you actively have to change a mindset or do you just notice it?
0: Um, as soon as I notice it, I soften. Like I can feel my whole being soften. It's like a horse like dropping their head and licking and chewing. It's like a nervous <laughs> system shift. And so, um, yeah, it's, it, I, I've trained myself. Like it's become an automatic thought now to ask that which we can create automatic thoughts that are actually helpful. And so mm-hmm. that's one of mine. And as soon as I have it, have that awareness, I can drop back into where I want to be. It's all mm-hmm. it takes.
2: Um, the third question is what is your favorite horse movie?
0: Favorite horse movie are the old school. One of all time was the black stallion. Mm-hmm. And the other is the man from snowy river. Uh, okay. yeah. I love both of those (laughs) movies.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. We haven't had that one yet.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, Oh, my (laughs) God. Surprisingly, we haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I loved all the wild horses and just beautiful partnership scenes with the horses.
1: Yeah. One last question we have is, uh, if we could have a guest on our podcast, who would you recommend for us to have?
0: Oh, have you had Warwick Schiller? Mm-mm. Oh, you should check out Warwick Schiller. All right, yeah. great. Yeah, um, he has a podcast called The Journey On, and uh, he has uh, his business is called Attuned Horsemanship.
1: Great talking to you and hearing about what you do and how you help people and and work with
2: animals. And uh, I think people will get a lot out of listening to it. I really enjoyed talking to Beth today about her book Uh, and it it was it was super interesting and I um I read some of the book and I was, you know, going on her website and I I think that like it's really um interesting concepts but helpful to a lot of people. Yeah.
1: I think I could have talked to her for another hour just about (laughs) what she does and yeah, I find it pretty fascinating and the way that she presents it again is like really easy to understand and um and I think you know people can take away things like she said you know people just read her book and were able to take a simple exercise and make a difference in their lives and I thought that was cool um you know they didn't have to have a 3-day immersive experience in order to change something
2: yeah and in the book she ha- she just has like so many interesting exercises to do, um, interesting concepts about culture and how we live, and things that you don't think about, like you know the part about the leadership i I really never thought about you know me being a leader or you know other other people that I know who are like maybe quiet and shy, but that maybe by reading her book, they'll recognize it in themselves that they do have something to offer. And like she said, bring it to the table and bring it better than they would. Right. And not be afraid to, you know, show that they have that capability. Yeah. And I think that a lot of it applies in, in the business world. I mean, Mm, and interestingly though, it really starts with yourself.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I liked that, you know, it is kind of a personal mindset first and then bringing that to the business.
2: Yeah. It was it was really great. She was super interesting and like you said, could have talked to her for another hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you can only have a
1: a podcast that goes for so long. So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs>
1: well, that was great. I think um yeah, if people want to find out more, um her book is The Human Herd. So check it out and see
2: what you can get from it. Find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th.
1: You can find out more at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with their free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now,
2: go improve your self-care.